This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. It's Monday, February 27th, 2023. From Peachfish Productions, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Lab leak wowza. The Department of Energy says it has data that supports the theory that the COVID outbreak began with a laboratory leak in Wuhan, China. Lab leak. Wall Street Journal reports that was supposed to be like, love freak. Wall Street Journal reports the U.S. Energy Department has concluded that the COVID pandemic most likely arose from a laboratory leak, according to a classified intelligence report recently provided to the White House and key members of Congress. Well, isn't that a fine how-do-you-do? Classic third act reversal. Closing credits reveal it was the scientist in the hazmat suit with the syringe. Cut to the pangolin we met in act one. Now hanging out in a wet market, a broken and destroyed pangolin. Where do I go to get my pangolin reputation back? And then there's the mask study. The big mask study, a study of studies. Recently, 78 studies show no evidence that masking works on a population level. We'll get to that in the spiel. But back to the lab leak paper. That resetting our COVID assumptions. The paper was reported with low confidence. Therefore, it will never really pick up any of the more attractive papers at the nightclub. But it is a shift, a pronounced shift from a theory that started off as insane to unthinkable, to discredited, to wrong, to unlikely, to possible, to, according to this one report, kind of likely. And along the way, what has happened among those who said, no, come on, there's no lab leak? Well, they've moved the goalpost. People say football is the national sport. I say it's moving the goalpost. With each inch along the continuum of likelihood, there was a concomitant shift in what it was that was really being asserted. Anyone, at one point, who would advance the lab leak theory would be labeled a conspiracist, a racist, deluded, simply wrong, probably mistaken. Uh, Yeah, but even so, what's important is helping the vulnerable right now, which of course is true, but Let's just notice where the goalposts moved to. We moved 13 billion jabs into over five and a half billion arms. I'm going to say six billion arms because some of them probably got their follow-up shot in a different arm. And that, my friends, is a miracle. But we've also dutifully moved the goalposts every step of the way with this hypothesis. And we do so regularly. That is human nature. I'm the Diogenes of the wet mart. I'm looking for an honest individual in the next few days who will say, you know, I did get it wrong. I was too forceful in my denunciation. Here now is my process, and I've located where I went wrong. What I'm sure I will get is, oh, don't believe this low-confidence report. Anyone who's foisting it on you is back to, and then we start in with deluded, conspiracy, racist, etc. On the show today, more goalposts, more corona news, 
analysts covering themselves, not in glory, but maybe in facial gauze. But first, the Martha Mitchell effect is the psychological phenomenon whereby a person is told they're crazy and treated as crazy, but in truth, what they're experiencing actually happened. Their perceptions were accurate. It's a lot like gaslighting, which has become an overly used catchphrase for all of lying, and maybe that's why the Julia Roberts series about Martha Mitchell is called Gaslit. The Martha Mitchell effect is not just a phenomenon, it is a 40-minute documentary available on Netflix that has been nominated for an Academy Award. We will interview Anne Alvorgay and Deborah McClutchy, the directors, up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Martha Mitchell was the Arkansas-born wife of Richard Nixon's Attorney General John Mitchell. Fiercely protective of her husband, who wound up not returning the sentiment, Mitchell was a darling of the D.C. press. She was outspoken. She was uninhibited. Now, that last quality does not describe President Richard Nixon. And when news of the Watergate burglary began to spread, Martha Mitchell forthrightly told the press that she would do anything to prevent the break-in from being pinned on her husband. There were only a few problems with that. One, John Mitchell did help plan the break-in and certainly helped cover it up. Two, Nixon loyalists, aka specifically henchmen, were unbound by the rules of polite society and trying to shut up Martha Mitchell. And three, society, even if polite, simply wasn't ready to take the word of a free-spirited woman who was alleging such far-fetched actions as being detained and drugged by the president's goons. Come on, that can't be true. And that expression of disbelief in a phrase is the Martha Mitchell effect. The short film by that name is now nominated for an Academy Award. It's playing on Netflix as we speak. Directors Anne Alverge and Deborah McClutchy join me now. Welcome to The Gist. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Were you like me? The first place you heard about Martha Mitchell was episode one, season one of the podcast Slow Burn. Yes, we we originally um, heard about her on Slow Burn. Um, and I think like many people who listen to her on that podcast, we're like, how have we not known about her? Who is this charismatic, hilarious person? What actually happened to her? And uh, we started digging into the archival. We figured if she had been so popular with the press, there must have been a lot of footage, a lot of archival footage of her. Um, and there, there is, there was a lot of archival, but it was limited. It was only, there weren't a lot of profiles. It was mostly interviews and such. Um, and then the more we dug, particularly into the White House tapes, the more we realized that there was a larger story to tell beyond what Slowburn sort of presented. Um, I mean, I think Slowburn was great. It was a lot about the quirky characters of Watergate and it spanned a larger spectrum of, of the, those quirky characters. But it really didn't scratch the surface in terms of what happened with the gaslighting campaign against her. And the more we dug into what Nixon, how Nixon and her and her husband, John Mitchell, were involved, the more we realized we had a larger story on our hands. 
when we did hear the story too, you could just visualize it and it felt like it could be cinematic, right? Like it was so dramatic and she was such a fascinating character just through the audio of her that we got really excited about that and realized like if we did find actual clips of her and archive of her, she would make a great character for a documentary film. And we dug for a documentary film. There wasn't one. And so we decided like we need to make this because she is such an incredible character just visually and cinematically. Yeah. I remember when Leon uh, and I were talking about Slow Burn before it ever existed. And if you don't know, we work together, we're friends. He said, you know, I think the way into this series is going to be through people, through characters. And I said to myself, really? Like, is Halderman that interesting? And then he played Martha Mitchell for me. And I was like, well, that's it. I mean, I've not heard of her either. And she is a character. And we as consumers of media and just human beings, we love stories told through people. And it was perfect. And it served him and that series really, really well. But you guys bring to light and this documentary shows just how perfect she was. Now, tell me a little bit about your backgrounds. Have you done character-driven nonfiction documentary before? And if so, how does she compare to other, say, central figures in your work in terms of charisma and being compelling? I am a, not, a documentary film feature editor by day. That's my bread and butter. And I have tended to work on archival, of late archival biographies, including Gilda Radner and Roy Cohn, who couldn't be much different, to be perfectly honest. Um, and then my own background has been more on the short experimental side. So um, yeah, I mean, I was, I was super excited to sort of tell, or we were super excited to tell this story in an all archival way. I mean, in the past, you know, as an editor, you, you know, you do actually as a documentary editor, you have a a lot of power. I mean, usually the story is written in the editing room, but you still are under a director's vision, which is fine. So, but I, I, you know, we were tired of talking heads. We wanted to do something that was completely archival driven. So we're completely immersed in the film and also have Martha's voice lead it as much as possible. It was, you know, it was form as well, form followed function. We wanted her to restore her agency. And in order to do that, we wanted her to tell her own story. So as you point out, Martha Mitchell was mentioned more than 100 times in the Watergate tapes. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Did you listen to all of those? What was the nature of the references? Bemusement, consternation, or, oh my God, did you see what she did now? It was all of those things. Yeah, yeah. Richard Nixon was pretty obsessed with her and talked about her a lot. I mean, she was the wife of the attorney general, right? So she's going to come up in conversation no matter what. It's like the mundane logistical scheduling things as much as it is, you know, some of the really awful, horrible, critical things. There's a conversation that he and Haldeman had about her that really disparages her appearance and talks about the way she looks and her weight. And it was just really gross. Um, so it escalated to that level. And then, of course, the gaslighting conversation was there. Nixon, early on, you have this clip, I think it was from the Frost interview. He said, if it hadn't been for Martha, there would be no Watergate. But there is so much that we shouldn't believe of what Nixon said. Why should we believe this? Well, I, 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 I don't think that we're trying to endorse that idea in our film. <laughs> but I, you know, it was obviously a very provocative statement. The, this idea that he was throwing her under the bus, that this man who literally resigned because he was about to be impeached is now years later 
talking about a cabinet wife and blaming her for one of the you know largest political scandals of the 20th century that he was literally behind. So we knew we had a story there. I mean, I think I think if you're asking why he was why he thought that, and you know, if we can try to go back in time and understand that, I think that he said that because he he had so much respect for John Mitchell as being a very smart and astute man and an attorney general. And he just couldn't fathom that this man would have signed off on this bungled burglary, so to speak, and that Martha was distracting John, that of course his wife was the problem, that she was distracting him during the seminal meeting in March of 72, where they talked about the gemstone, you know, uh, strategy that, that uh, G. Gordon Liddy had come up with. And that was essentially what led to the Watergate burglary, that she was there distracting, that, she, that they were on vacation and that she kept knocking and telling him to leave and stop, you know, the meetings. And he just, you know, made the wrong decision because of her. Oh, that's so interesting. I didn't interpret it that way. I interpreted it as, first of all, Nixon, I thought at that time, was um, talking about and referring to Watergate as a regrettable and unfair circumstance or tragedy that was thrust upon him. So in fact, he was saying that Martha Mitchell created all of this attention quite unfairly, and I was victimized by it. But you're it's you know what you're saying. I defer to you. He he was saying that there really was this break in Operation Gemstone and G Gordon Liddy, and it was all Martha Mitchell as this chaotic distracting force that allowed it to happen. I think that's a fair interpretation, though. Also, yeah, I mean, if we if you extend the bite, he clarifies it. So that's why we think. So that's what it is. But it's all how you define Watergate. I mean, we had this conversation with Dwight Chapin when we were talking to him and we were like, what does this mean? And he interpreted it as you did. And we were like, well, actually, we think it's this, but I think it can be both. And also Nixon, um, at the center of his soul, at the core of his personality was paranoia. And, you know, to some extent it served him good. But, I mean, you can't possibly imagine someone with that amount of I guess, uh, self-loathing and just lack of confidence in himself uh, achieving such great power. So this would be a reason, and not just the, you know, the sexism of the time and his probable personal sexism, but who Martha Mitchell was represented to him, even probably when she was a loyalist and was still married and supportive of her then husband, um, represented to him a 180 degree difference in temperament, personality, and therefore I would think he'd always have to think of her as a threat. Is that, do you think that's true? Yeah. I mean, I think that he, I think they liked each other at first, honestly. Um, I think he found her amusing and, you know, enjoyed when she could be a spokesperson for the administration and she could, you know, support their platform. Um, And I think as, you know, because he and John Mitchell were so close, he kind of, you know, tried to appreciate her as his wife. But we frame the story as a love triangle in a way, um, which people find really interesting and some kind find uh, find sort of funny. But it really kind of was because 
both Nixon and Martha were vying for John Mitchell's attention. And um, I think there was like a jealousy there in, in some ways where, you know, Martha consumed too much of John Mitchell's time and, and Nixon wanted his closest advisor to be at his beck and call. How well did Martha Mitchell know Nixon before he became president, since her husband ran his campaign and had apparently business dealings even before that? Nixon started working for the firm that John Mitchell was a partner in, in New York City. And so I think that they knew each other socially. I mean, she was like, you know, a, she was a socialite, so to speak. Um, and in, and supposedly she was the one who encouraged John Mitchell to campaign for him, that he wasn't really necessarily behind Nixon. But I think that Martha liked the limelight. I mean, I think she wanted, you know, more, even though once she was in D.C. and was such an outlier, she she regretted being there. But I think that she um, I think she was ambitious and she was ambitious for her husband. And what were her politics per se? I mean, people have to realize before Nixon became president, he was Eisenhower's vice president and young and seemingly on the rise and also quite smart. If you look at his politics, actually, you know, judged by the Republicans of today, unbelievably progressive in many realms. So what was what was um, what did what was Martha's politics beyond just supporting her husband, if she had any? I think she was apolitical in some ways. I mean, I don't know if she had like a very strong political ideology of her own specifically. Um, you know, she was a supporter of Nixon. She carried the party line and she was the spokesperson. Um, and, you know, people want to know if like she spoke out because she had this like true sense of um, like a commitment to democracy. And I believe that that's totally true. Like she did feel that democracy was under threat and she felt that, you know, powerful people were, were threatening the democratic nature of the country. She's, she was a conservative Republican wife. There's, there's no doubt about it. I guess she was sort of apolitical, but she, she towed the party line for sure. Um, in, until I think sometimes when it got personal, like she spoke out against the Vietnam War, not because she was a peacenik, but because her son was was in combat and she wanted to protect him. So she, and then as you know, she was maligned by the the, the Republican administration and saw their dirty tricks. She slowly kind of moved towards being more of a Democrat, but she was never really a Democrat. She was a woman of her time. She was a Southern woman most likely a Southern Democrat, you know, really. And then, um, you know, you know, she was in no way a feminist. And also after she, I guess, blew the whistle and uh, surfaced allegations that she was uh, beaten up and drugged, the liberals, the liberal activists mocked her. They didn't essentially take her side, right? Yeah, they totally mocked her. I mean, that footage when we found it of the yippies um, saying free Martha Mitchell, free Martha Mitchell, like when we uncovered that footage, we couldn't believe it. That was a gold mine. Um, so yeah, they totally did mock her. Was she, was there a discernible um, journey from not just what the White House was doing, but just in conventional wisdom and public consciousness from most people believing that she was out of her mind too by the time she died pretty young, most people coming around to the idea that she was right. Could you trace that? Could you put I mean, your I finger on I think we that? do trace that a bit in the film. You know, um, 
you know, as it became pretty clear that Nixon was culpable and that he was going to have to be forced to resign or be impeached, Martha sort of has this honeymoon period where she does the talk circuit show and she's actually listened to. People actually um, are taking her seriously, are not demonizing her as a drunk or mentally ill or buying the party line. And and I think I think that was important. I mean, unfortunately, you know, she died prematurely pretty soon after that in 76. I mean, you know, would, I don't know what she would have become had she not died. I mean, maybe a talk show host. I mean, she was kind of leaning in that direction. She had an amazing personality and was incredibly charismatic. Do you have any personal insight or opinion as to what, in the love triangle, what soured in the marriage? Was it the case that that John Mitchell actually chose Nixon over his wife in the love triangle, or was it something else? So we don't know what John Mitchell's motivations were. Listen, he was a lawyer. So perhaps he was always going to deny and deflect. And so, and, and so based on that, de facto sort of chose Nixon. Um, I think that he, uh, I think he couldn't control his wife and he wanted to control her. And he had controlled her for a significant period of their marriage. But when he realized that he couldn't, that things had gotten out of control, that what she was, that her outspokenness, although it was to protect him, so she said, and I think it was in her mind, that was her intention, it didn't. It just muddied the waters. And so he felt that he needed to distance himself. Why he became so mean and evil in the end, I, I don't know. I mean, that still baffles me. Yeah, that baffles me too. But there is that, you know, that um, that bite of his early on where he says that she's our unguided missile and he smirks and kind of laughs. And I think that, was very much true and he appreciated it until he didn't until she became uncontrollable as Anne said. Um, so there was a, a, another side to that coin and yeah, the, the bite at the very end when he says, you know, it could have been worse. They could have sentenced me to live with Martha Mitchell. That line is so cruel. Yeah. This is, this is at his, this is outside the jail. What do you have to say? His one statement was a dig, a zinger at his ex-wife. And it struck me as he apparently thought that that would serve some sort of purpose that at least some percentage of the audience would say, oh, this poor guy had to, let's realize the uh, person he was living with. I mean, now we don't, especially as presented in your documentary, but it just points out at the time that she wasn't uh, seen as an unalloyed force of truth telling and good to everyone in America. Yeah. I mean, it's a very strange strategy to elicit sympathy for yourself. Yeah. Well, I got that crazy ex-wife. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they were very much in love in the, in the beginning, you know? So I think maybe the deep love that he had for her turned into something very deeply hateful <laughs> as it can, you know, in these relationships. So it could have just been that. The Martha Mitchell Effect is the name of the documentary. The directors, Anne Alverge and Deborah McClutchy. Thank you both so much. Thank you. This was fun. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And now the spiel. Cochrane, an independent policy institute out of the UK, has been called in the pages of the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Slate, and Plus One, the peer-reviewed journal of the Public Library of Science, been called the gold standard 
of meta-analytic review. They come out with the big studies, and their latest big study was on masks. The methodology was to review randomized control trials, which themselves are considered the gold standard. So a gold standard of the gold standard. What did we find? According to The Atlantic, quote, the review's authors found little to no evidence that masking at the population level reduced COVID infections. So to quote another Cochrane, if the masks don't fit, they will transmit novel coronavirus. Most of the reporting is of the, this doesn't mean that masking doesn't work variety. It just means there's no information that masking does work. So in that regard, it's the same as hopping on one foot or tithing to Ithune, the Norse goddess of apples. I can't prove that those things don't work either. I am interested on how something works on an individual level, but not a societal level. Uh, Aren't we as a society, just a collection of individuals? So is there a threshold beyond which we say, nope, no longer a bunch of people. Now you're a society. It's no longer going to work. And that's where we're pursuing some interviews on this subject. But this is a good authoritative study. And a good, authoritative, very important study on a very important issue you would think would have some good coverage. And it had some good coverage. Leanna Wen, writing in the Washington Post, did cover it and did correctly report the results that this study couldn't find masking as an effective tool for government to implement. The question that it answered was, do mask mandates work? Not do masks work. Do mask mandates work? And this study indicates, no, they don't really work. More studies can offer us different information, but this very big study by a very reputable place is a blow against mask mandates. Again, not a blow against masking. Didn't read anyone credible saying it was a blow against masking. For the immunocompromised or anyone who just wants to be really careful and always wears an N95 mask the right way, do it. Only an idiot would say, no octogenarian cancer patient, don't wear a well-fitted N95. The question, the public interest question was never, should governors Abbott, DeSantis, and the rest advise old frail individuals to take off their masks? They should not, and they did not. It was, should they decree by government fiat that masks must be worn? Hey, if I were them at the time, knowing what we knew then, I'd have said, yes, absolutely. I could justify my stance now, and it was by saying, well, we didn't know everything then as we know now. But think about what I'm saying. Now we know more things. We have some excellent meta-analysis, a large piece of evidence from a well-regarded institution saying there's no evidence of mask mandates working, right? Trust the experts. These are experts. Believe the science. This was done via scientific method. If we are to put our faith in evidence, here's evidence. And yet, some of the loudest, I'll say most hectoring voices for science, 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 of which I'm in favor, 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 have now changed their tune, altered their principles, moved the goalposts. Let's remind ourselves of the goalposts. I think back to last year, and it's just symbolic of a lot of coverage. CNN's Victor Blackwell invited on a New Jersey mom challenging that state's mask mandate. And you'll hear his question to her, her answer, and his response. Do you believe that masks work to, to stop the spread of the virus? I think there's many cases where, um, especially with kids, the masks don't work because they're not being worn properly. Um, there's arguments where people aren't wearing the per- correct type of mask. So I think that that is something that cannot be controlled in all of New Jersey schools. Um, Bruce, I think we probably should stop the conversation right there. 
if we're having a conversation about whether masks work or not, I really believe the rest of this is, is futile because we know that the science shows that masks work. The mother, Kelly Ford, had it right. They don't work if the kids don't wear them properly and the kids just aren't going to wear them properly. On Friday, the LA Times ran a piece by Michael Hiltzik, which argued that the Cochrane Papers' lead author, Tom Jefferson, wasn't its lead author, and even if he was, that he didn't understand what his own study actually concluded. The Guardian ran a piece by Lucky Tran, headlined, Don't Believe Those Who Claim Science Proves Masks Don't Work. Tran, claiming masks are magnificent, writes, The analysis is flawed because it compares apples to oranges. The paper mixes together studies that were conducted in different environments with different transmission risks. It also combines studies where masks were worn part of the time with studies where masks were worn all the time. And it blends studies that look at COVID-19 with studies that look at influenza. Yes, of course it does. There are only a few gold standard studies on COVID-19, but all of those 78 studies taken together form the meta-analysis. I guess Lucky Tran is saying if we threw out 50 of them, we'd get a better analysis. But there's no plucking and choosing from those studies that would indicate that mask mandates work. There was a Danish study that showed mask wearers got COVID at a rate of 1.9% and mask eschewers got it at a rate of 2.1%, but that is not a statistically significant difference. There was a Bangladesh study that showed more promising results than some of the other ones, but the authors warned that the study was flawed. For one thing, it wasn't based on mandates, just outreach to encourage villagers to wear masks. For another, the treatment group, meaning the people who wore masks, were not only masks, but they adhered to a lot of other mitigation strategies strategies like distancing. And for a third, the difference in mask wearing to non-mask wearing was tiny. 0.78 of 1% of mask wearers versus 0.73 of 1% of non-mask wearers versus 0.68 of 1% of mask wearers. And by the way, you can compare apples to oranges if you're, say, doing a study on the effects of leaving fruit out for 90 days or a study asking, do these two fruit have vitamin D? No, neither does. If you throw out apples, the study about oranges doesn't get better. It still doesn't have vitamin D. Tran blasted a New York Times op-ed by Brett Stevens titled, The Mask Mandates Did Nothing, Will Any Lessons Be Learned? That's a defensible headline. Provocative but defensible. One defense is this huge meta-study. Tran says, no, Brett Stevens is, quote, using the same disinformation playbook that tobacco companies, the fossil fuel industry, and the anti-vax movement have used in the past. No, they're not. Disinformation? That has just come to mean any information we'd like to diss. The Cochrane study, one clear data point, not the end of science, but important part of science, and, and a part that draws on the methods of science, simply shows that mask mandates were and are ineffective in stopping the spread. This isn't the moon landing was faked even if you want to portray it as such. Hiltzik spends more than half of his column critiquing Stevens and Tom Jefferson, often, I'd say mostly, in ad hominem ways. Hiltzik was not open to the results of this study. He's not a scientist. He's a veteran columnist with a long track record covering finance. But he just hates Brett Stevens. He's clearly become so radicalized on issues of masks and the right always being wrong that he can't be trusted to fairly characterize and describe what's an extremely important topic. Tran also refuses 
refuses to engage with any information that complicates his worldview, reflected in tweets about Liana Wynn's endorsement of loosening restrictions as COVID waned. Back then, he wrote that when, quote, pushed for policies that have resulted in excluding immunocompromised people from society, if she really cared, she would be pushing for equitable practices like mask mandates. Now, with a false appeal to the Old Testament God called the science, the Guardian simply allows Tran to discredit a highly credible source because the source doesn't endorse his preferred remedy. Tran was an organizer of the March for Science, edited a book about voices from the Marches for Science called Science, Not Silence, and is identified in The Guardian as a scientist and public health communicator who works at Columbia University, which may lead you to believe he works in the Mailman School of Public Health or is an epidemiologist. He's not. He's PR for one of Columbia's hospitals, which is great. I don't think it offers him a perch to mislead the public about the quality and nature of the Cochrane study. So I guess we, as informed news consumers, should simply consign now The Guardian and the LA Times, Vox also part of the list, they had a hit hit piece, maybe CNN if they don't update their stance, just consign them to that pile that says, can't really trust them on the really important issue of mask mandates. They'll never rejigger their priors. The Atlantic, they're still covering the science responsibly. The Washington Post is too. But we're down to fewer and fewer outlets who actually want to inform as opposed to want to grind a tribal axe. Because the important thing isn't having been right earliest or having your inflexible definition of the science adhere closest to what the latest thinking is. The important thing is actually coming up with public health measures that will improve the public's health. If that's not to mask, which seems to have a lot of evidence behind it, the evidence being it's not particularly effective, if effective at all, don't fight that. Think about what is effective. Redouble your efforts in those areas. This study is not disinformation. It's the opposite. And insisting on the effectiveness of mask mandates, that's not information. Knowing you're right about masks when you aren't, that's not actually knowing. So stop the bickering over your cultural proxies and just do your jobs, which if you run a newspaper includes not allowing some PR guy to misinform your readers about disinformation. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the GIST producer, and Joel Patterson is the GIST senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash the GIST. Oomperu, Jeeperu, Dupru, and thanks for listening. 